I don't know about you, but I feel like I don't have to say a whole lot after that Advent reading and that song. Um, but I've got this sermon prepared, so I'm going to anyways. Um, a few years ago, I found a devotional guide um, and Bible reading guide um, called Seasons that's published by the Village Church in Texas. Um, this guide, it follows the church calendar, otherwise known as the uh, liturgical year. And it's a resource that uh, the village developed to help their members kind of use the rhythm of passing time uh, to focus uh, their minds and their hearts on the story of, of Christ. And it's got content um, that kind of covers all the seasons of the liturgical year, um, starting with Advent, which celebrates the birth of Christ, and then Epiphany, that celebrates the manifestation of Christ, Lent, the temptation and death of Christ, Easter, the resurrection of Christ, and ultimately Pentecost, the spirit of Christ. I discovered it online a couple years ago, and I found the whole thing kind of interesting because um, I think like many of us, I grew up in a tradition where I wasn't entirely familiar with the liturgical year, uh, with the church calendar. I mean, I knew about Advent and Lent. Advent was the season where you got chocolate for four weeks, and Lent was the season where you gave up chocolate for 40 days. Uh, I think you know which one I preferred. I really didn't have much of a clue about these other seasons. Um, I never realized that Easter is actually a period of time that lasts 50 days. It's not just a weekend. Or that the church still celebrates something called Pentecost. And Epiphany was an entirely new thing to me um, when I picked up this book. But over the last few years, as I've used it a few different times and kind of stumbled through um, following through this guide, I've been learning about what all these seasons signify and the traditions that are associated with them. And I've found these rhythms actually very helpful and refreshing, and they've brought a new significance to our Christian holidays for me. Um, and Advent and Christmas are no exception to this. I've noticed in particular with Advent that it it's, makes me kind of pay attention to things a little bit more, specifically with the lyrics of, of Christmas music. Um, one song that has become a favorite is one that we sung this morning, um, Mary Did You Know. I really, really like that reflective nature of the, of the song, and it asks a question that I, I'm genuinely curious about. Like, how much did Mary and Joseph realize that night? Like, what conversations had they had? Had they put it all together? Because we, sitting on, on this side of history, have the benefit of hindsight, and we have the benefit of the gospel writers, who interpret everything that happened on that first Christmas for us. Um, Matthew writes... Uh, now all this took place so that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Matthew's quoting from Isaiah chapter 7 here, 7 verse 14 to be specific, and he interprets that passage for us, that this is a messianic passage. It's a messianic prophecy, and that the complete fulfillment of what Isaiah is speaking about only finds its complete fulfillment seven to eight hundred years later on that first Christmas night. And then there's John who writes in the prologue of his gospel some of the most eloquent and well-known words about Jesus. He identifies this baby as the word, which was with God in the beginning, and he was God. And he also calls him the light of mankind shining in the darkness. These words also remind us of another place in Isaiah, Isaiah 9, verse 2. And we all, and we know that um, from these gospel writers and from hindsight that this baby that we find in the manger, we know who he was because the gospel writers explain it to us. 
But did Mary know? Mary, did you know that your baby boy is heaven's perfect lamb? The sleeping child you're holding is the great I am. Did you know that God himself came as the Messiah, which Isaiah spoke of? You see, these particular passages in Isaiah 7 and 9, they've become very familiar to us around this time of year. Um, Isaiah 9 in particular, we read it last week and we're going to read it again here in a few minutes, is one of the most famous messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. And it was spoken during a time when the kingdoms of of Judah and Israel were divided. Um, Judah was in the south and Israel to the north. King Ahaz was ruling Judah at the time and he was a king that did, did not honor God. Um, And he was starting to get worried at the time that Isaiah was writing this prophecy because the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria had made an alliance and they were going to attack the nation of Judah. And he was, and and they actually did attack and they took many captives. And Ahaz wanted to deal with this. He wanted to bring peace, but he was going to make a deal with the Assyrians to help them or to get them to come in and help him and stop Israel and Syria on his behalf. And Isaiah is warning him in in chapters 7 through 9 that this is a terrible idea, that it's not going to result in peace at all. Instead, it's going to result in distress and darkness and in the gloom of anguish, we read at the end of Isaiah 8. But amazingly, it's from that place that God, through Isaiah, promises that this will not last forever, that he is going to ultimately rescue his people, extending mercy and grace, that the Messiah will come. Isaiah calls Judah to trust in God because he will be their ultimate rescuer, the ultimate bringer of peace. Now, part of Advent is about entering into this anticipation that Israel felt for this and, um, and that the Jews would have felt uh, if they would have trusted in the Lord's words through Isaiah. So let's read this passage. Let's stand together, actually, as we read it. This is Isaiah chapter 9 and starting in verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence. As with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and, a, and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So in the midst of war and division, even when King Ahaz and Judah are refusing to trust in God, God promises a light to shine in the darkness. He promises the Prince of Peace. He promises rest. And we know that he delivers it himself. And of course, there's a ton that could be said about Isaiah's prophecies. Um, and, uh, but on the second Sunday of Advent, we want to focus in on one title that Isaiah gives to the coming Messiah, the Prince of Peace. And the word 
peace in this passage is, of course, um, a Hebrew word that many of us are going to at least have heard before or be a little bit familiar with. It's the word shalom. And this Hebrew word shalom carries with, with it a meaning that is, is much more than just an absence of conflict. Um, one of the senses of this word is the idea of completeness or wholeness. And so as we consider Christ as the Prince of Peace or the Prince of Wholeness, the Prince of Completeness, I want to remind us of just a couple simple truths this morning. That first, Christ is the perfect. He is the complete representation of God. And second, we are only complete in him. You see, the writer to the Hebrews says that Christ is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Paul, writing to the Colossians, writes, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Mary, whether she knew it or not, in that moment in the manger, was witness to one of the greatest moments in human history, one of the greatest mysteries, one of the essential truths of the Christian faith. She had witnessed and she had become party to the incarnation, that God had taken on human form. The word had become flesh. And that is a staggering truth, that all the infinity that the creator of the universe is had come into a finite human. The first cause, the origin of beauty and morality, all that he is was brought into humanity. Mary's baby was theanthropic, divine and human at the same time. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, puts it this way. Jesus of Nazareth was God-made man. He took humanity without loss of deity so that Jesus of Nazareth was as truly and fully divine as he was human. What this means is that in Jesus, we have a complete picture of who God is and what he is like. Christ has personified the character of God because he is God. Again, Paul says in Colossians 1.15 that he is the image of the invisible God. Through the incarnation, God has made himself visible, which is remarkable. Because in Exodus 33, Moses is on the mountain and he asks the Lord to see his glory. He says, please, Lord, show me your glory. But the Lord responds like this. You cannot see my face, for mankind shall not see me and live. And it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of, of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. In Exodus, Moses was not permitted to see the full glory of God. And yet, as we turn to John chapter 1, and we read starting in verse 14, we read this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in verse 16, for of his fullness, we have all received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. In Jesus, we find the explanation of who God is. In Christ, we have what Moses never did. The radiance of God's glory is made visible. His character put into humanity, into terms that we can understand, something that we can relate to. Again, I, I love how the NASB translates that last verse there, verse 18, the last sentence. He has explained him. You want to know what Jesus, or you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. 
You want to know what God would say? Listen to Jesus. You want to know what God would do? Well, what would Jesus do? When we get to know Jesus, we get to know God. When we become more like Jesus, we are transformed into God's image. When we want an explanation, Jesus is it. He is the complete, the perfect, the whole representation of God the Father. And at least in some sense, for me, this is what it means for him to be the Prince of Peace. After high school, uh, I spent a year on the West Coast uh, in British Columbia at a, at a Cape and Ray Bible School. And we had a mix of guest lectures and, and resident lectures that would teach us from week to week. Um, and there's little things I remember from each one of them. But one guy I remember, I couldn't tell you who it was, but I remember what he said. He encouraged us to follow this Bible reading plan. He said, start in Matthew and read through Matthew and then read through Mark and then read through Luke and read through John. And once you've finished in John, go back to Matthew and read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. After that, read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then once you've read them all through, then maybe go ahead and read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. His point was this, get to know the Gospels and what they tell you about Jesus. Because by getting to know Jesus and the stories of Jesus, you get to know God. And when we consider the story of the incarnation itself, of God becoming human, and what happened there on that first Christmas, we get this amazing window into what God is like, even just from this, this story of Christmas. Because on that first Christmas, not only did God become human, he became a baby. He wasn't born in a palace, he was born in a stable. Not to wealthy and powerful parents, but to a poor carpenter and his virgin fiance, likely disgraced because of how the whole thing looked. As if the condescending of a holy God to be made in the likeness of men wasn't mind-boggling enough, God chose to come in this quiet and humble fashion. J.I. Packer writes about it this way, that God became man, the divine son became a Jew, the Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and, ta and taught to talk like any other child. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. And where it gets even more staggering is when you consider why he came. He came for us. From the beginning, the incarnation meant the birth of Christ, but it also meant the death of Christ. And that was no secret to Jesus. He would have known Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities just as well as he would have known Isaiah 9, for unto us a child is born. And as we read from Philippians 2 earlier this morning, he emptied himself, he humbled himself, and he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He came that we might have life and life abundantly. He came to seek and save the lost. Christ is the exact representation of God's character, and in him, in the incarnation, we see that God does not always work in the way that we expect him to. As we heard so well expressed by the ladies this morning, he works from the stables and through the poor. Despite being utterly deserving of it, he chose not to arrive with great fanfare, at least not yet. It's like Elijah on Mount Horeb. God wasn't in the wind. He wasn't in the earthquake. He wasn't in the fire. He was in the still, small voice. We also see in the incarnation that God is willing to get off his throne to give up his privilege, his position, to restrain his power, to accept hardship and poverty, to be vulnerable. 
He was willing to be associated with the lowly and numbered with the transgressors, all for the sake of pursuing us, restoring us, healing us, and making us whole. Because that's the kind of God that he is. There are plenty of places in the Old Testament where these aspects of the character of God come out, where he has done things, or he has said things, or he has decreed things in the law that give us a window into his heart. But nowhere is the character of God more fully revealed, more fully made manifest, more fully understood than in the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Christ embodies the true Christmas spirit, writes Packer. The Christmas spirit does not shine out in the Christian snob. For the Christmas spirit is the spirit of those who, like their master, live their whole lives on the principle of making themselves poor, spending and being spent to enrich their fellow humans, giving time, trouble, care, and concern to do good to others, and not just their own friends in whatever way there seems need. Christ is the complete representation of God, but he is also the perfect picture of humanity. You see, God, when God created us, he created us in his own image, in his own likeness. And of course, we know that the fullness of that image, it didn't last very long. Because of the fall, we are all now broken image bearers. The Imago Dei is still present within us, but the image is incomplete. We know this about ourselves. We know that there are many times where we don't feel this shalom in our lives. We don't feel peace and wholeness. And even if we manage to experience it in our own lives, we look around at the world around us and we see that it's not present. We don't have to look very far to get the sense that something just isn't the way that it should be. Where there should be love, there is hatred. Where there should be joy, there is sadness. Where there should be peace, there is anxiety. Where there should be light, there is darkness. Things are not as they ought to be. Things do not look the way that God intended when he created humanity in his own image. The once whole picture is now tainted. But Christ came to restore that. Christ came to bring wholeness. Christ came to show the world what being in the image of God truly looks like. And this is what the incarnation was for. St. Athanasius, he writes in the 4th century, um, a little volume called On the Incarnation. And in it, he says this, For as when a figure painted on wood has been soiled by dirt from outside, it is necessary for him whose figure it is to come again, so that the image can be renewed on the same material. Because, because of his portrait, even the material on which it is painted is not cast aside, but the portrait is reinscribed on it. In the same way, the all-holy Son of the Father, being the image of the Father, came to our place to renew the human being made according to himself. He's saying we once had that perfect image of God painted on us. But sin messed that up, and now the picture isn't clear. But God doesn't throw us away. We retain our worth and value because we are still image bearers. We just need that picture to be made whole again, to be repainted. And that's what Christ came to do, to be our restorer, our prince of peace, to make us whole. Paul writes in Colossians 1, verses 19 and 20. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And although you were previously alienated and hostile in attitude, engaged in evil deeds, 
Yet he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. And notice in Paul's description here who the actor is in all of this. It's God himself through Christ. It isn't us. We aren't responsible for our own reconciliation. We aren't responsible for our own wholeness. It's Christ's work. Christ didn't come to be the perfect example so that we could work really hard to attain this image or to conform ourselves to it so that ultimately we could by our own effort find peace and wholeness. He did not come to show us how to get peace. Christ came to give us his peace. He didn't come only to live a perfect life so that we could see how it was done. He came to live a perfect life on our behalf. And then ultimately he came to die on our behalf. All of this so that that thing which is causing brokenness in the world, the thing that has tainted the image of God in humanity, this sin, could be dealt with and defeated so that we could be made whole again. All we need to do is choose to trust him. Trust that he is who he said he is. Here is invitation to peace in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Or hear his words to the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus answered her and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never be thirsty. But the water that I will give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to eternal life. Christ offers us a peace with God, rest for souls, and satisfaction of our deepest longings. But all too often, we look for peace everywhere, except for in the Prince of Peace. When we are overwhelmed with the brokenness of the world, the imperfection of those around us, and our own sense of emptiness, where do we look for wholeness? Do we look for it in our accomplishments, in the completed to-do list? Do we look for it in safety and security? if only we can just avoid getting hurt or sick? Do we look for it in our bank accounts or in our romantic relationships or on realtor.ca? Where do I look when I want things to just feel okay? When we look, when we look anywhere except for Christ, we are just repeating the mistake that King Ahaz made when Isaiah was prophesying against it. Remember, that messianic prophecy that we always refer to, that we read this morning, it comes at a time where King Ahaz is under threat of attack from the north. And despite repeated warnings from Isaiah, he takes matters into his own hands and he makes a deal with the Assyrians. You might remember the Assyrians from our series on Jonah. These were not good people. But he makes with a deal with them, hoping that they can help him out, but it only serves to be his detriment. We reread that excuse me, we read that in Second Chronicles. After they've freed Ahaz from the immediate threat of, of Israel and Syria, they end up afflicting Judah instead of strengthening her. Ahaz had sought peace somewhere other than God, and he didn't find it. Instead, he found oppression. And so it is with us. We can look for peace amid chaos, calm in the midst of a storm, but if we do not look for it in Christ, we will never find it. St. Augustine writes, our hearts are restless until they rest in him. And I don't know about you, but that restlessness that Augustine writes about it, writes about, I know it all too well. 
Some days the peace of Christ, the assurance of his promises and my standing with him, the sense of wholeness, which can come from keeping him as my first love, the feeling that all is right with the world, trusting in his work, past, present, and future, that kind of peace feels like it's fleeting. And I know what it has, for, it has been for me lately anyways. And this morning, if you find yourself in that place with me, will you join me not at the foot of the cross, not at the empty grave, but at the manger? At this place of great wonder and mystery where in the words of Charles Wesley, our God contracted to a span and was incomprehensibly made man. There at the manger, let's meet the Prince of Peace and there remind ourselves of his immense love for us, his incredible pursuit of us, and that regardless of how we feel in any given season, we are already complete in him. This Christmas, may the Prince of Peace bless you and may he keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.